Well, church, go ahead. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Uh, We're going to be reading this morning verses 1 through 13. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word. Uh, This is the parable of the dishonest manager. And Mark Owens is going to be reading for us out of God's word this morning. And so, again, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Mark? Good morning, friends. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you, Mark. So here's the thing as we jump into this text. This is a notoriously uh, difficult parable for multiple reasons. And so before we get into the meat of the parable itself, I, I want to address a couple of the, uh, of the difficulties, at least that I think that make this a difficult thing or a difficult parable for us to both um, just be open to, but also to hear. And, and so um, the first thing that we need to understand as we approach this text is we need to understand that Jesus is dealing with a principle. This is about a principle, and it's meant to press us to examine our own hearts. So the difficulty for us is that oftentimes when we come to a story like this in the scriptures, we want to align every single part of the story to something that's very, very tangible, don't we? So like we want to think that the rich man, um, that 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 is equal to God the Father and that the, the shrewd manager is equal to all of us. Well, here's the thing. It's important for us to remember this is not an allegory. This is a parable. They're very different. What Jesus is trying to get to and what he's trying to put to us is not for us to align every aspect and every component of this parable up to something that's real and tangible for us, but that we would grasp and that we would gain 
uh, certain principles that he wants us to understand. And this is really important because when you read this text, if you are lining the master up with God, like you see the master praising the man for dishonesty. And we know God would never do that, right? And so we got to be careful with that. And we understand that what Jesus is trying to engage in is a principle. Now, one of the challenges with that in that space is that we like to be able to walk away with very, very tangible actions, especially when it comes to something like this, when it's dealing with our wealth or our finances or our money or all those types of things. Like we want to be able to walk away and be like, okay, here's what we know. We believe that God is telling us to give 30% of our finances to the church. And we believe that he's giving us uh, 20% to kind of live on our, uh, like get on our, our savings and pleasures and 50% on our needs. Listen, if that's what you want out of this sermon, it's not what you're going to get. That's not what this text is trying to get to us for. It's not what it's trying to point us to. It's trying to engage us with specific principles. So we want to be mindful of that. Secondly, we need to be reminded and understand that a word can never mean what it never meant. So one of the difficulties in this parable is that there are certain words that are used here by Jesus that meant something very different to the people of first century Judah than it does to us in 2022. Like very, very different. So for example, let's take the idea of shrewdness. Anybody like the idea of being called shrewd? See, we take that idea and we think of shrewd and we're like, oh man, no, shrewd is dishonest. Well, that's not actually the case. Shrewd means something very different. And in fact, in in verse nine, Jesus says, he's talking about how this man or the, the master says, the manager was actually praised for his shrewdness, not his dishonesty, but his shrewdness. Like we think of shrewdness like like Uncle Scrooge in the Christmas story, right? Like someone who's stingy and sneaky and and, and kind of thinking about money all the time. So that's not the biblical idea of shrewdness. Shrewdness in the biblical idea in the Greek here simply means wise, prudent. Meaning in, in essence, he understood what was coming up in his life and he used his wealth or he used the manager's wealth in an appropriate manner. Now, We'll talk about how that plays itself out. But to be called shrewd is actually not a bad thing in this context. In fact, one of the principles that we will learn is that he wants all of us to be shrewd, not dishonest, right? Those are two very different things, but shrewd. Now, there's other things in here. For example, he talks about wealth. He talks about it as unrighteous wealth. The Greek word is mammon. M-A-M-M-O-N. Well, that's not how it is in the Greek, but nonetheless, you get, that's the, the literation for us. Now, when we think of wealth and we think of this and we read it, we think money. We think dollars and we think investments and we think of that thing. The concept to the Jewish mind when they talked about mammon was every resource you would need for life. So this included your health, it included food, it included your home, it included every resource. And so we need to see it much more globally than just dollar bills with dollar signs, right? So we need to understand that. The third is this concept of the sons of light. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about when he talks about the sons of light? Because he makes a very clear distinction. He says the people of this world are actually more shrewd than the sons of light, And that's a hard distinction. Like, what is he talking about? And we'll get into some of those details as we go. But ultimately, when he's talking about the sons of light, he's talking about the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel, out of all of the other nations in the world, they had been given the law. They had been given the prophets. And they'd been given the guidance of God. And they'd been given the temple and all of these different things. 
And, and the question is, were they faithful with what they were given? And so we need to understand that the words that we're reading in there, we don't just get to apply definitions to. Like they have real definitions in the Greek and in the context there. A word can never mean what it never meant. All right, third thing before we get into the bulk of the text. This is an encouragement about looking at our hearts. The third difficulty, and it's a real one, is that this deals with our relationship with our wealth, with our resources. Few of us get excited about the scripture pressing us regarding our view of wealth, right? Like, there's a reason why we don't tell you two weeks in advance, hey, everybody, in two weeks, we're going to be talking about wealth. Because we don't like that. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Oftentimes, especially when it's done within the church, like the church shouldn't be talking about these things. And yet Jesus talks about it all the time. The challenge for us is we don't like the idea of coming face to face with the potential that we might actually be giving more attention to our wealth than we should, that we might love it more than we should, that we might be more attached to it than we actually think we are. When it comes to wealth, it is very, very, very easy for us in this day and age to dismiss what is being said for a variety of reasons, right? We can dismiss it based off of, well, I'm not wealthy compared to name the person. Or I'm not wealthy in the sense of I've just got so much stuff that I don't know what to do with. Like I can't just go buy myself a $30 million yacht. Uh, so I, I'm not wealthy, wealthy. or, or we, we look at the people around us and we say, well, I am wealthy and, and I'm doing right things with my money in comparison to the person that I'm sitting next to, right? I, I'm, I'm doing enough because I give to this missionary, I give to that in comparison to the people that were around. So our natural tendency, and this is part of the reason why this is a difficult thing for us, is that, that we naturally want to justify how we use the resources that God has given to us. This is an indictment on you. This is me. I think this is the vast majority of us at the nature of who we are. And what's interesting is that the Pharisees, after Jesus says this parable, and after he says you cannot serve both God and money, the Pharisees get upset with Jesus, and they begin to ridicule Jesus. And look at what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 16, verses, or verse 15. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, here's something I want to remind us of. If you've been around the church for very long, you hear something about the, the Pharisees, and you automatically put the Pharisees in bad person category, right? Pharisees were bad people, meaning that they knew that they loved money and they were manipulating the people of Israel to try to gain profit for themselves. And they were sitting on hordes of gold and silver, all at the expense of the people. And listen, there might have been a few of those. But let me just help us be reminded that to the people of Israel, the Pharisees were the best of the best. They were good people. They were righteous people. Their whole basis for living was they wanted to be obedient to the law in the most strict of ways possible in the hopes that God would give them favor because of their obedience, in the hopes that God would turn his eyes upon them because of their obedience. The scariest part to this is this. 
It is possible, I think it's more likely than the other scenario, that the Pharisees heard Jesus say this parable and said, wait, what? Me? You don't know me. Let me me justify all the reasons why you're wrong, Jesus, that we're not part of this category. They were self-deceived. And we need to be careful as we come to this. We need to be careful not to seek any justification for ourselves regarding our view of wealth, but let us seek to see our hearts. Not the way we see our hearts, but the way he sees our hearts, amen? Like, are we open to that this morning? I hope so. So, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna jump in back into the parable. So let me recap uh, the parable before we get into the main principles and the main points that I think that Jesus is trying to get us to see. So a manager, a rich man, uh, is, a rich man has a manager who is using his wealth for supposedly, supposed to be anyway, for his good. And the rich man has an accusation that is brought to him that his manager is wasting his possession, meaning that this manager is not doing a good job stewarding his wealth, that he's not doing a good job for uh, the this rich man's name or his kingdom or whatever it is. We're not giving all that stuff in the parable. And so the rich man calls the manager and he calls him to account. In essence, he basically says to this manager, he says, listen, you're not doing what I've told you to do. You're wasting my possessions. And so goodbye. Now he doesn't give him a time frame. We don't know how much time. Was it two weeks? Was it a week? Was it 10 days? We have no clue. But what we do know is what happens into the manager's mind in the next section of Scripture, right? Jesus gives us a picture into what is going on in this manager's heart. As he says to himself, as he says to himself, he goes, what am I going to do now? Like, what am I going to do now? Like, I've wasted this opportunity, and I'm, I'm not the guy to go out there and do heavy labor. Like, that's, I'm not built like that. Like, I'm a desk I'm a desk guy. Like, I'm an office guy. I'm not going to go do that, but I'm not going to go beg either. So here he sees his predicament that he's wasted this time, and he doesn't know what to do, and he's pondering all of these different options. And then he has an aha moment. Anybody ever had one of those? Where everything becomes clear, and you're like, okay, I know what I'm going to do now. I got this. And so verse 4 says, I have decided what to do. I have decided what to do since I have been removed from management. So what does he do? Well, he goes on to engage the wealth of the rich man. And he begins to bring people who owed the rich man money. And he begins to lower their debts for one purpose and one purpose only. Not because he cared about the rich man not because he was sad, not because he felt guilty or ashamed for how he had managed the assets of the rich man. He is only doing this for his own benefit. His goal is, I'm going to use now the rich man's wealth so that at the end of the day, when I'm done, I might gain favor with some of these people and they'll receive me into their world and into their lives and I won't have to labor and I won't have to beg. But I'll give them kindness so that they'll give me kindness. Now that looks great if you don't know the motivation of a person, right? If you're somebody who owns a certain amount of money on your house and a banker comes to you and says, hey, you know what? Let's cut your debt in half. You'd be like, sweet. 
Like, you're the nicest person I've ever met in my life. Now, you don't know why, but we already have a look into the motivations of this man, into the heart of this man. And what happens next, and this is the strange part, is the rich master sees the manager. And then he actually praises him in a sense because he sees his smarts. He sees his shrewdness to manage the rich man's money to a very particular end. Except it was now acting at the expense of the master for the good of the manager rather than for the benefit of the master. So the the rich man praises him, but what is he praising him for? He says, man, you saw the circumstance you were in. And in wisdom and in prudence, you decided to try to figure out how to leverage the resources that you were in charge of managing towards a particular end. In other words, you worked hard. You did, a, you did a good job. Now, the end goal is bad. Like the rich man's not praising the manager for being dishonest. He's praising him for looking at his circumstance and actually acting in accordance with that. Which brings us to the first main thrust of this parable. Look at verse 8 again. I believe that Jesus is beginning to explain the parable to his disciples. And he says this in verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's explaining the cause for the master's praise. He was acting with shrewdness in light of his his perspective and his goal and his master, which was ultimately himself. So this is the first point. We should be living a consistent life. And you're like, how do you get that out of this? All right? So here's how we get this out of this. I want you to imagine that you go out after church this morning and you meet somebody and you start to talk to them and you find out that they are um, a person who is an atheist. And so this atheist, they believe that there is no afterlife. That once you're dead, like you're just dead. Like you're just done. Like your eyes closed. There's no hell. There's no heaven. In fact, you're just a random ball of random molecules that kind of came together by chance. And there's no absolute right or wrong. There's no absolute truth. You get to just do what you want. For that person, in that reality, they truly believe that. And so when they truly believe that, there's no greater value in this world than to eat, drink, and be merry until you die. That's it. And so for that person, who could blame them for leveraging every one of their resources to meet their own pleasures, to meet their own interests, every one of the relationships they have to ultimately help propel them further up the ladder? Like, if you truly believe that to be the case... If you truly believe that's real, why not live that way? At least the world is consistent with what they believe, meaning they live very much in accordance with what they believe. Let me give you another example. And and I'm going to use the the topic of abortion because uh, I think it's really clear for us. Uh, I want to be sensitive. I know some of you have had that touch your life in a very particular way. And I know that every circumstance uh, is challenging. It's different. But here's ultimately one I I would give to you that helps illuminate a point. I want you to imagine a young woman who's studying um, for her PhD to become a a, a neurosurgeon. 
And here she is, she's studying for that. And, and she decides one day, man, you know what? I'm having a lot of hard times. So I'm gonna go out to the club and I'm gonna get with a guy because you know what? Pleasure is just important for me. And so I go out and I get with that guy and I get pregnant. And now I'm faced with the decision, right? I went out to have a good time and now I've got the consequence of this, but I'm in the middle of my PhD. And if I have this baby, like I'm not gonna be able to do my PhD work. I'm not gonna become the, the doctor that I wanna be. I'm not gonna be able to make the money that I wanna make. For her in that world, can't you see why it'd be easy for her to say, well, this is just a run, random bunch of cells anyway. I don't believe in a God. I don't believe in anybody making me. I don't, I don't believe in anything but evolution. So why shouldn't I just eliminate them? Why not? Like it's consistent with their worldview, isn't it? It's consistent with what she's thinking. Like the most important thing in my life is to succeed, to climb the ladder, to, make the, to get the degree, to become a, a, a neurologist. Like that's consistent. At least she's living consistently with her worldview. And the point Jesus is making in this text, he's saying like, hey, look, the sons of the world, they're being more shrewd because they, they believe certain things and they're living in accordance with that. But the sons of light, they are not. Why? Because they've been given all of these truths They've been given the presence of God. They've been given the word of God. They've been given the law. They've been given the prophecies. They've been told they were set apart. They have this wonderful history of God doing miraculous things in them. And they say they believe in God as the one and true God. And that they want to love him with their whole heart, whole mind, and whole purpose. And yet, they live very different than they should. Meaning they're not wise meaning they're not being prudent. The people of Israel, they believed all these things, but they were not living consistent with what they said they believed. They were not going to the nations around them and drawing them to the Father. They were not living shrewdly with what they said that they believed. There was no consistency in their life. Now here's where it becomes personal for us. For everyone in this room who has believed in Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord in their lives, you and I are now the sons and the daughters of light. First Thessalonians 5, 5. For you are all children of light. Speaking to believers, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So the question now for us is to examine our lives. Are we living shrewdly considering what we, not, what we now say we know, considering who we now say we know. Which leads to the second main point of this parable. We are to use the wealth that we have been lent with prudence, with shrewdness, with wisdom. Jesus tells the disciples to make friends with their wealth. It's a strange statement, isn't it? Go buy some friends, people. Is that really what he's trying to get at? It's not what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say is you've been given this stuff. You've been given this memon. Now use it to go make friends, meaning go bring people into the kingdom of God. Go be a witness. Go be an evangelist. Go proclaim the excellencies of him and use what God has given you to do so. 
meaning you give money to the poor, you give wealth to the kind, you give your time to those who need your time, you lend your house, your car, you give your strength and your energy and your health, all for the end that God has, which is to bring more people into the kingdom of heaven so that they will be there to greet you in eternity. Isn't that awesome? Like, think about that for a minute. Think about you passing away and you going into heaven and there before you is a cloud of witnesses that know Jesus because you gave your life for the sake of the gospel. That's what Jesus is talking about. Go use the things that I have given to you that you might bring more into the kingdom. And notice what he says in verse nine, and this leads us to two more points. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Remember, unrighteous wealth there, Jesus is not saying that it's good or bad. He's saying it's neutral. Money, a dollar bill, isn't righteous and it's not unrighteous. How you use it is unrighteous or righteous. But what's he going to say? So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal. Brothers and sisters, your wealth will fail. Your wealth will fail. It is going to come to an end. There is nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. You can either invest towards the etern your eternal dwelling, or you can slowly watch it slip out of your fingers with zero return on your investment. You can buy that car for sure, but it's going to rust. You can go to the gym every single day of your life to try to maintain your health. Ask someone who's 95 how that's working for them. Sorry, any of you who are 95 in this room, like I'm just saying, like that's a reality, right? We're going to lose it. We're going to lose our vitality. We're going to lose our strength. We're going to lose over time our mental capacity if we live here long enough. We're going to lose all of the things we've bought. None of it can be taken with us, amen? Buy your house. That's great. Celebrate it. It's a gift of God, but use it for his kingdom. And recognize that no matter how many times you redecorate it, it's always going to go out of style. <laughs> Listen, that's fine. Know that. I'm not saying that if you redecorated your house this month that you're bad. I'm just saying understand what it is. You're going to lose it. It's going to fail. Next thing that we need to see from this text is that your wealth isn't yours. Your wealth isn't yours. And this is a wonderful reminder for us. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Brothers and sisters, this is true for the believer and the non-believer. Man, you may pride yourself in that IQ. You didn't give it to yourself. You're not the one who chose for you to be born into that family, into that time of life. You're not the one who gave you the knowledge and the wisdom and the ability to, to attain knowledge. You know, there's all kinds of people on different spectrums who can read the same thing and get totally different things out of it based on the intelligence that God has given to them. Does that make them more or less valuable? Absolutely not. 
There's some people like my wife, who if you put a paintbrush in her hand, you'll stand back and be like, what? How did you do that? God gave that to her. She didn't earn that on her own. Like we like to think that we've climbed the ladder ourselves. And listen, I'm not saying that you haven't done something. And I'm not saying you haven't participated in some things. But here's what I am saying. There are some things and everything you do have was given to you by God. I am never going to have a 42-inch vertical. Never. In my prime, I could barely dunk a basketball when no one else was around, right? Like, and I tried. I got the little calf shoes that you walk around on looking like an idiot, right? You know what I'm talking about with where you, they make your legs stick? Anyway, you, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I, I tried, but I'm never gonna be there. I can't. And yet some people come out of the womb like dunking a basketball. Like no matter how much I try, I'm never gonna be able to throw a ball like Patrick Mahomes. Now did he work to like make that a better and, and to engage that? Yes, absolutely he did. But God has given him that gift. God has given him that gift. And he believes in all honesty that he is the center of his own universe. And so he's leveraging that gift to build himself up. That's wise if he's right but it's foolish if he's wrong. And brothers, I tell, sisters, I tell you, he's not the center of the universe. And what he has has only been lent to him because there's going to be a day, even for Tom Brady, he ain't gonna be able to throw the ball like that anymore. It has been lent to him. And so the huge question is this, are you and I living shrewdly with the reality that this is not our home, that all of our wealth, all that we have is lent to us and all of our wealth is going to fail. And the only thing that matters is being faithful as he deems faithfulness with what is his. The final main purpose, thank you. The final main purpose and the vital principle for us to understand at the end of this is that we need to pick our master. Jesus is making it clear that you cannot serve yourself and him any more than a manager could serve his master and himself at the same time. We read this and we think that the two masters are God and money, and that's true. But at the end of the day, what's important and what's at stake here is our hearts. And how we view money is reflective of what's going on in our hearts. So let me confess something to you. I would have never said that I was a lover of money. That's not ever a way that I would have put myself into that category. And yet, when I first got married to Karen and we were early on in our marriage, I would find myself getting really frustrated about things that were going on in our lives because um, I was watching our savings account go like this. And I was getting frustrated. Every time a bill would come to pay for our kids to go to a Christian school or every time we'd have to deal with a doctor's appointment or every time something would break in our house or we'd have a car accident or whatever would happen. Or uh, I'm not gonna throw my wife under the bus any, right? It was always me, um, right? But, but here's the thing. Every time that happened, I got frustrated. And when I really started to realize it and think about it, I started to think, why am I so frustrated? There's still money there to pay for this stuff. You want to know why I was frustrated? It wasn't because I loved the dollar. It was what I, it's what I loved that the dollar could buy me. I was mad because every dollar that I had to spend on something else in my house was a dollar I couldn't spend on myself. 
to buy that thing I wanted. And it, had, it took me having to realize that, be like, oh my goodness, like, I'm, I'm loving myself over my family. And I started to realize that, no, no, I, I love my wife and I love my kids. And so what happened over time as I started to think about that, it became a joy for me to spend my money for my wife and my kids because I loved them. And I had to volitionally seek to die to myself. See, we only love money and wealth when it is a means to the greater end, which is our self-interest. Let me say that again. We only love money and wealth when it is a means to the greater end of our self-interest. If God is your great love, then money can't be loved. It can only be seen as a tool for his glory and for his good. It's about our hearts. It's about what's going on in here. And it's about what's most important to us here. There is a basic change that has to happen in us. It's a heart change. It's an encounter with Jesus. Not just something that we believe, but a complete shift in our lives. Let me try to explain. Prior to encountering Jesus and the Father in any real sense for me, in, in, in a tangible presence um, in my life, I had a lot of knowledge about God. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up right here in this church. And so I, I could answer all the Bible stories for you that I had in my head. In fact, if you were to look at me in my early 20s and in my teens, like you would have said that I was living very, very prudently in accordance with the only story I had. You know what that story was? Me. Me. Life was about adventure, and it was about fun, and it was having a good time. It was about preparing myself and my foundation so that I could make a lot of money and, and get money in advertising and marketing, which is what I wanted to do at those times, and I was going to school for that. And so uh, I, I was living prudently in all of those things. I would go out with my friends, and I would spend my resources for that, and I would spend my time having fun, having a good time, mindful of that. And guess what? All the world would have looked at that and said, you're doing exactly what we expect you to do. Good job. Going to school, having money, having a good time with your friends. But something happened to me. I met Christ. I met Jesus. And suddenly I realized I wasn't the center of the universe. And suddenly I realized that I, I needed to die to myself. Isn't that the message that Jesus gives us? Those who seek to save their life are going to lose it, but those who will lose their life for my sake, they're going to gain it. Like it's a change in my perspective. I still had the same resources that God had lent to me, but now there's a different leverage behind them. There's a different purpose behind them. And so it's interesting as I think about the end goal and I think about where I am in my life now. And I think about the choices that we make when we seek to lay our life down to adopt another child. Listen, it isn't a religious act. It's a relational act because God is found there. And the world, and we get it all the time, looks at us like we're crazy. Why would you do that? It's so expensive. Like, it's going to cause more challenge in your life. It's going to make your life harder. Like, 
That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't to the world. They don't see that as prudent. They don't see it as wide. They don't see it as shrewd because to them, the only thing that matters is eat, drink, and be merry. But for us, we have a different end. And that end is to glorify Jesus and to find Jesus and to be with Jesus more, even in the hard things. And so to adopt makes a lot of sense for us as believers in Christ, doesn't it? Saying no to my flesh is desire for pleasure. Like that's not a moral act. It's a relational act. As I lean in more to him, as I seek to find him, using my resources for the hope of the gospel towards missionary work, that's not a duty. It's a relational act. I'm seeking his desires over mine. I'm seeking his goals over mine. I'm actively trying to die to my own heart and my own desires for the sake of his own. When I tithe and I give my offerings to the church, like it's not a begrudging act of mandatory duty that I have to do a religion. It's a joyful laying down of myself. It's the first time I get that check and I get to say like, God, I love you more than I want to use this. And I'm going to leverage this for the sake of the kingdom of God. Like that's what it's about. It's about the heart. Now, what's terrifying is you can give all of those things and your heart still be wicked. And nobody will know it. You can give all that stuff. And you say, I'm going to give to the church and I'm going to give to a missionary work so that you can then justify spending all the rest of your wealth on your own things. Let me just tell you something real quick. In the Old Testament, there was a demand that everybody had to give 10% of their first come of their, of their wealth to the Lord. That's gone for us. You want to know why it's gone for us? Not because we shouldn't give to the church or we shouldn't give to his work. It's because as Christians, it's all his. All of it. Not 10%. This is not like the soldiers in the crusades that when they were baptized as they went to the crusades were baptized while they held their swords up above their heads basically saying, I'm all Jesus's except for my sword. You don't get to be baptized and say, I'm all Jesus except for my credit card. I'm all Jesus except for my house. I'm all Jesus except for my TV show that I love. I'm all Jesus except for my health and my, my wealth and everything else. No, it's all his brothers and sisters. And Jesus is saying, like, just act shrewdly. Be wise, be prudent. If you believe this is not your home and you believe that I'm coming back and you believe that when you die that you're going to be in heaven, not only with me, but with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, why would you invest anywhere else? Don't be foolish. Be prudent. Be wise. In Luke 16, 15, we already read it this morning. Jesus says to his Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. When God looks at your heart, when he looks at my heart, what does he see? What does he see? Does he see someone who is serving him but doing enough Christian things, going to church, tithing here a little bit, here a little bit there, simply to avoid hell? Or does he see someone who cares about God's interests more than their own? Like that's what this parable is pressing us to. 
And that's why it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Like, it's uncomfortable for me to preach. I'll just be honest. It's uncomfortable for me to hear because I have to look at all that God has given to me. And I have to say, in light of what I know to be true and what I would declare to everyone else to be true, am I living consistently in regards to the resources that he has given to me? Where's my heart? Just like with my wife, when I got married, where was my heart? It didn't matter if I went ahead and paid for Christian education if my heart wasn't changed to love my kids more than my money or myself. Where is our heart? That's the question I want to leave with you this morning. And here in a second, Ryan's going to come out and he's going to lead us in a song called I Surrender All. And if you're like me and you read that song or you sing that song, you may be going like, ooh, I don't know that I do surrender all. And that's okay. Like let our time together as we end this morning, even as we sing that song, be an opportunity for you to pray a prayer. God, I want to surrender all. Help me to surrender all. I confess that I haven't surrendered all. And it's important for us. Listen, like we don't talk much about giving to the church in this space, like oftentimes. But you know, that's, that's the easiest first place to start. In our survey, when we asked the question, how many people are giving? There was a lot of people who said, no, I'm not yet. I, I intend to, or I'm never going to give. Listen, this isn't, we reminded, God doesn't need any of your resources. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need any of it, but he does require your heart. And every time we have the privilege to give to the kingdom through a church, a local church, is an opportunity to check our hearts. How do I feel as I write this check? Am I upset because I'm gonna get to spend this money on my own interests or am I joyful and I do it as an act of worship? God, be praised. Take this and use it for your glory. I'm excited to give it. Man, if that's you, then you know the joy of giving. And if it's not and you're still resistant, this isn't about central getting more of your money. This is about asking the question. If you're resistant to that and you refuse to do it, even if you're 12 years old and get an allowance in your home, the question ultimately is, why are you resistant? Where's your heart? Check your heart. Are you willing to surrender it all? I want you to pray with me. Father, this morning, these are hard things, in part because we live in a world, particularly in this country, where wealth abounds. Like, it just does. And I'm glad that in this text, you remind us that it's not wealth that's bad. It's not. Like in Timothy, you say, you say into the church, you say, let the rich not be proud and may they focus on good works. Like you assume there's rich in the church. Like, that's not a bad thing. But Father, you do require our hearts, regardless of whether we have money in the bank account or whether we have nothing. And you require and ask that we as your people would live shrewdly in accordance with what we say we believe. 
Father, I want to pray for each of us in this room this morning that that would be how our lives are just known. That the world would look at each of us individually, that the world would look at us as families, that the world would look at us as as singles, that the world would look at us as um, brilliant scientists and engineers and businessmen and women and, and, and all those different things. And they would look at us and think, man, they're so strange because they don't, they don't look like they're living their life in a prudent manner in accordance with the world's eyes. May that be true of each of us. Father, and I pray that you would help us to just examine our hearts. Like, you know our hearts. Help us to see them the way you do. And Father, if our hearts are right, I pray this morning that we are encouraged and we're stirred on to even be more generous and more um, giving. But Father, if our hearts are not right, would you convict us by your spirit that we might be free, that we would be free from the bondage of ourselves. Lord, I ask and I pray that even as we sing this song, I surrender all, Lord, that we would be open to truly surrendering all. I pray these things in your name. Amen.